Welcome to Rise to the Top, a podcast from the Greater Houston Partnership that aims to amplify the voices of accomplished female leaders in the Houston region. In each episode, we feature compelling guests who share their personal journey and discuss how their organization is making an impact right here in Houston. I'm your host, Katie Pryor, Chief Development Officer and SVP of Member Engagement for the Greater Houston Partnership. In this episode of Rise to the Top, we're speaking with Dr. Melanie Johnson, President and CEO of the nonprofit Collaborative for Children. Today, we'll talk about Collaborative's goal of providing relevant early educational opportunity to all Houston children. We'll also talk with Melanie about her incredible and diverse career path, her personal journey juggling motherhood and work, and what advice she has for the next generation of female professionals. We are honored to have Melanie here with us today. Melanie, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. So we are going to get started. I'm very excited to have this conversation. We have a lot of ground to cover because your career trajectory has been absolutely incredible and there's quite a bit to talk about. I'd like to start off by letting our audience get to know you personally. Tell us a little bit about where you're from, what makes you you, and how you launched your career. Well, I'm from a small town in Alabama in the deep south called Tuskegee, Alabama, And it's a cozy little town where children are safe to roam and ride their bikes and pick blackberries and plums. But likewise, um, you're able to to learn from schools that have been poorly invested in. And um, I found my joy and my passion in the museums in that industry because that little town packs a bold punch when it comes to American history. Um, We have great American icons like Booker T. Washington and... George Washington Carver and the Tuskegee Airmen. And so each one of those those individuals, of course, are honored by a museum in that area or groups are honored by museums in that area. And that's where I found my love for learning outside of the classrooms with tattered and worn textbooks and, you know, no playgrounds and just just poorly um, equipped schools. And that's when I decided that my career trajectory should be one that empowers a community, especially its children to understand its birthright and its lineage that's steeped in a history with scientists and strategists like the Tuskegee Airmen and great orders like Booker T. Washington. And so that is the launch of my career to do indirect education experiences where most people learn the most, not just eight to three at, you know, during the school before the school bell tolls. And it sounds like you started to identify that career path rather young. Is that right? Absolutely. I just marveled at going into Booker T. Washington's home and the Oaks and finding out how he possibly would have devised debates, you know, against W.B. Du Bois and, and then looking at George Washington Carver's amazing scientific discoveries for newly freed slaves. I just fell in love with the sciences and the spoken word at that time. Now, uh, you're a mother. So tell us a little bit about how some of that might have influenced uh, raising two sons and even your experience. And tell us a little bit more about what makes up you. Yeah, as a mother of two sons, two adult sons, um, when they were growing up and, you know, in the Houston area, it was very important to me that they had no boundaries and they had no fear as to how to navigate those boundaries. Because 
when you are only proficient in the language, the dialect, and the cultural ethos of one community, then you can only be successful in that community. But if, if you're multilingual, uh, bi-dialectical, and you understand many cultures, then you live in a boundary-less world, and the world is your playground. So I didn't want them to just to be relegated to the school system in terms of their learning platform, but likewise, based on my experiences, loving museums, loving indirect learning experiences, I led them to travel the world and see things firsthand that were different from the ways that we live and, and become victorious in those arenas. That sounds like a culturally rich childhood for your children, which is really um, special and remarkable. And we're going to come back to a little bit about um, navigating that in a minute, but I do want you to share with us a little bit more about your career path and what led you to where you are now at Collaborative for Children. Yes, Katie, great question. You know, as I mentioned, you know, I fell in love with the museums. And so my first museum um, out of, you know, coming out of the education from early education all the way to higher ed, the formal education community, I went to work for NASA Space Center Houston as director of education. And there, likewise, I wanted to make sure that outliers like girls in STEM and children from developing countries would have these very optimal learning experiences across the globe. And so we we're able to put those programs together so that hundreds of thousands, a million visitors per year to the Space Center would have the love for their birthright as the first people to walk on the moon, you know. And then I left the Space Center, went to be president and CEO of the Health Museum. And likewise, another entity, just as I grew up, you know, learning that I was a child or a product of these great strategies. The Health Museum sits to the east and in the shadows of the world's largest medical center, the Texas Medical Center. And I wanted to make sure that the children of our community not only understood how to be healthy, because we, we have some pretty low ratings in terms of access to health care and, and health and obesity for our children, but I also wanted them to understand that world-class research was being done right in this community where they lived and that they could aspire to have those careers and uh, especially those careers in biotechnology in the future. So that's why uh, my journey at the Health Museum was very important to me. And I want to talk a little bit more about that journey at the Health Museum, because while you were there, the institution became a Smithsonian affiliate. Can you tell us a little bit more about that experience and maybe go into a bit more about the role of the Health Museum and plays in educating young people about their own health and about their bodies? Yes. Well, I actually was a participant in getting the Space Center Houston to become a Smithsonian affiliate, which was a very different process. It was much simpler because the spacesuits and space capsules were already on loan from the Smithsonian Institution. So pretty simple there. But at the Health Museum, it was a little bit different because it was a museum that had lied dormant for many, many years, had um, not very many attendees at the museum. And so I've subscribed to something called the Blue Ocean Theory, and you may have heard that before. And so it's a marketing strategy that whereas the Health Museum sat neatly across the street from a world-class children's museum, the Houston's Children's Museum was in a bloody ocean, basically, um, in a 
a very competitive landscape, trying to do very similar things as a children's museum. And it's very difficult to compete with such a, an incredibly excellent museum. So we got out of that red bloody ocean and, and dove into blue uncontested market space. And we were able to know our target audience very, very well. And our target audience said, we want something very different. We have the Children's Museum, but we want this place to be able to demonstrate how intelligent our children could possibly be in all these medical careers of the future and technologies of the future. And so that's what we where uh, we landed a Smithsonian affiliate because we dove into blue oceans where no one else in our community had gone. We knew our target audience very well and were able to offer artifacts and items from the Smithsonian as well as experiences that would support them as well. I see some uh, themes in your career path here, which is probably bringing us to where you are now. So I do want to talk about Collaborative for Children. You've led the organization since 2018, and uh, we're just named as a most admired CEO honoree, I will add. So maybe you can talk to us a little bit about the Collaborative's objectives and how the organization goes about achieving its goals. Yes, I think I'll start, Katie, with the biggest problem that our community has, right? We're trying to prepare children and, and people for the workforce, especially a future workforce. And if you start at, you know, third grade literacy or middle school or high school dropout rates or college readiness and career readiness, those are much more costly and reactive approaches. But if you start at the beginning of a child's learning trajectory from birth to five, where the child is developing 90% of its neural synapses, which just kind of formulates a good solid learning brain. That's the opportunity to put your strongest teachers, your, your, to empower your parents to understand how to age appropriately support their children. And that's why that work is so important at Collaborative for Children. And the way in which we do that is we rate childcare centers for the Gulf Coast Workforce Board to make sure that every child whose tuitions are for childcare tuitions are subsidized, that they're in a high quality rated childcare center. But we also go beyond that and make sure that the children that we serve are on the trajectory for being school ready on day one of kindergarten, which less than half of Houston's children are able to pass the kindergarten readiness exam. Wow. So you mentioned, um, you know, some of the, the challenges that you um, have identified and are trying to overcome, but what would you point to is really one of the biggest, if not the biggest challenge facing early childhood education in Houston specifically? Well, today, the biggest challenges are um, we're stuck in, stuck in kind of an antiquated support system where we want to make sure that the environment of a child care center is of high quality, but the center today, especially as a result of the pandemic, is in need of support to stay open. They want more children enrolled in their childcare centers because they're nowhere near capacity. And then the other problem is that they can't find teachers when we're still stuck in a system trying to ensure that we have high qualified teachers and that we train teachers with professional development, but the childcare center is saying, send us a teacher at least uh, because there's a shortage of, um, of staff members as well. And that is something I, I think you're exactly right. We continue to see as a challenge in the full spectrum of education is the quality teachers who are either leaving 
the workforce and the occupation or having a tough time recruiting the new ones to it. So absolutely. I can see that completely. Now you're an educator through and through. And so I want to know, um, you know, your perspective on early childhood education's role in helping shape a community and future workforces. These, these children grow up one day to be adults who are active contributors to their communities. And, you know, what do you see the role of child early childhood education? Yes, Katie, it's phenomenally important that we start at the beginning between the ages of birth to five, more specifically birth to three, because 85% of the neural synapses are developing at that time. But the way in which it's so important to our community at large, especially our future workforce, is that the skills that are most important in early education are learned through play, number one, organically. Um, They're learned not in an eight to three setting, as I mentioned early on, they're learned all over the world, even driving, riding in the car seat in in the backseat of a car and singing a a lovely song with your parent. Um, They learn social emotional skills and they learn executive functioning skills, because if we focus so much on the cognitive skills, the reading, writing and arithmetic, We have no idea what skills and what jobs of the future that we're preparing these students for. Jobs that existed just five years ago are almost obsolete now. So just imagine a five-year-old 10, 15, 20 years from now looking for an opportunity. What they will constantly need, what the constant will be, is the social-emotional skills, the ability to learn to navigate an environment, to manage their time appropriately, to share and to have rapport with people and respect for one another. Those those skills, social, emotional and executive function are what we focus on so that our future is ripe for possibilities. So I'll go home and I'll work with my three-year-old daughter on her time management and her sharing. Those will be our our goals for the rest of the summer. Thank you for that, (laughs) Melanie. So many of our listeners are mothers, fathers, working parents who work outside of the home or at some point in their career were raising young children. As you mentioned earlier, you are the mother of two adult sons today, but what was it like as you worked to develop your career and manage family at the same time? And how'd you go about juggling those priorities? Without a doubt, it is a chore to raise healthy, wholesome children, of course, with virtues and values and also have a very strong career. And I do believe that you can have it all, but you just can't have it all at once. And so when your time is dedicated to your children, make sure that you have no distractions, that everything else, you can't dedicate your time fully to your children unless you've completed your work at hand. And work seems to never be complete. But make sure you get to a point where you a stopping point that is reasonable for you to be able to focus without distraction on your children. And likewise with work, make sure your children are in a very high quality rated child care center so that you can focus on your children. What that looks like is not necessarily all the bells and whistles, the the water park in the back and all of those cool things, the puppet show arenas and things of that nature. But it's really a teacher who is eye level with your children, respectfully interacting with your children and probing them to be independent learners and independently navigate the world around them. So I think those are important things in terms of getting the balance, but you cannot negate that at some point you will have some parental guilt and just know that that's normal. Absolutely. I think we 
many of us, if not all of us experience that. And what I hear you talking to is that, that connection, that intention, and, and just that being present in the moment that you're in work or at home and expecting the same of whomever your child's with and the child care provider that, that they're with. And so I think that's, that's very impactful, wise advice. Absolutely. Uh, so Melanie, as you reflect back on your years in leadership positions, um, what can you point to that drives you as a leader? The tabla rasa, basically. I love to take a blank slate or just an organization or an entity, specifically one that's iconic to its community, that tells its community how strong it actually is. Like the space program, we're space scientists. We're, we have a natural birthright to be inquisitive and to be brave and bold. And we, the health museum, I mean, we are medical scientists of the future. We're researchers. And I want our entire community to know that. Those, those kinds of entities drive me. Uh, but I, I like to go to an organization where um, it's not fully fleshed out and it needs the, the hope and the capacity and the strength in order to expose to the, its community how important those entities are. Now you get very involved in your community and uh, you're involved with a number of organizations as a board member and as an advocate for the organization's work. How do you decide where to spend your time and energy outside of work and home? I think you determine what your intrinsic values are and mine are the outliers in education and mine are those experiences that are um, outside of the eight to five or eight to three classroom for the most part. So in terms of advocating for the outliers, you know, I serve on the Texas Southern University's foundation board where uh, we support fundraising to make sure that, that students who are um, having the last opportunity to graduate and who may be first generation might fall through cracks and need funding to support um, their matriculation. I serve on Avance's national board. Um, we support primarily the Latinx community and their children to be able to excel in kindergarten and beyond, especially in home-based childcare. And of course, I serve on the governing board for the Greater Houston Partnership that truly looks at policy, especially with regards to education. And we are very grateful for your service to the Greater Houston Partnership and um, all of the value that you add through that leadership role, as I'm sure the other organizations are as well. Um, so we talked in the beginning that this podcast is largely focused on women in leadership positions. And of course, we've heard a lot about your trajectory and your past. And I wonder if you can tell us your perspective on the challenges that young women face today and how they're different from, say, 10, 20 years ago. And what are some of the specific challenges facing women of color? Yeah, it's, it's quite counterintuitive in terms of the challenges that they faced 10 to you know, 20 years ago. Um, there were very few opportunities or at least evidence that women could excel in C-suite positions as well as board of director positions. So you kind of negated the idea or the promise that that was upon you. Well, now you have women in those positions and, and those roles uh, a little bit more. I'm not saying that we're anywhere near where we should be. But you, you, you are able to see women, um, politicians, you know, leading the country and executives and, and, and board members. 
But at the same time, um, the, the challenge that's posed there is that how now do you navigate that? Now that I've seen it happen, there's not a whole lot of evidence or um, people reaching out to make sure that you're able to get into those, those roles. And those are relational. So I would suggest to people that you get to know as many people as you, to young women, is that you get to know as many people as you possibly can to offset those challenges. Yeah, and really serve as um, a mentor or a, a sponsor of career paths and upcoming opportunities. And so how do you go about that? How do you go about working to encourage and, and mentor the next generation of strong women or serve as a sponsor for them? Yes, I, I have now uh, at least eight to 10 uh, mentees and I enjoy that so much. They're primarily African-American women who um, might be first generation who aspire to do executive, you know, to lead executive roles and um, to take on those kinds of opportunities. And um, the way in which I go about that is, well, first of all, there's always proximity. It's very difficult for one side of the aisle to have proximity to the other side of the aisle. It's very difficult for those who are um, in executive positions to have proximity to aspiring students who are new graduates. And so I try and make sure that I'm in those places like Texas Southern University. Um, I also once served on the library board for University of North Texas, but to be in those places where you can meet those individuals. And then when they're there, reach out to them. You know, it, you see something in them that uh, might demonstrate that they have those aspirations, reach out to them and then be consistent be available to them and um, be accessible to them and be authentic. You know, they don't want your, uh, your C-suite genre. They, they don't want your, the nomenclature that you're so brilliant and you're so smart. They want you to just talk to them straight about what challenges they might be facing and how they can someday um, reach their goals. Mm -hmm. And help them navigate that. And I think, you know, something that you said is a really valuable advice is don't wait for the mentee to come to you. Really the mentor has a opportunity to proactively reach out to them, see something in them. And that might be what it takes to get that mentee to, to see it in themselves as well. That's correct. Because, you know, oftentimes they don't even know how to approach you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, now I want to have a little bit of fun before we wrap up today. It's something that we love doing. This is our lightning round, Melanie. So we want to know about Melanie's Houston, what you enjoy most about this really great city, this great region. So quick answers, just fire away. Favorite restaurant. Turner's on post-it. Favorite place to unwind. Epicure on West Gray <laughs> with a good book. Place you love to take out of town guests. Uh, Miller Outdoor Theater, a nighttime picnic. Power lunch spot. Monarch Hotel at Zaza and Cafe Leonelli at the Museum of Fine Arts. What makes Houston a great place to live? Well, of course it's people, but I would also say the variation of industry that we have in this city. What does Houston need more of? A highly qualified and prepared labor force. And when you think about Houston's overall trajectory as a city, what word comes to mind? Pioneer. Pioneer in place, pioneer in medicine, pioneer in everything that this country could benefit from. Excellent, excellent answers. And I think we're going to start a, a food tour of Melanie's favorite places <laughs> in, the, in the city of Houston. Those were excellent um, they ideas all seem and to answers. Surround. 
Correct. They all seem to have some element of food in them. <laughs> they do. But you threw a book in there, of course, rightfully so. You're going to go <laughs> unwind with a book. So, Melanie, I want to thank you so much for sharing with us today. I am certain that your story, your perspective, and your advice will help others. And we just really appreciate you taking out the time to be on Rise to the Top today. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. And that's it for this episode of Rise to the Top. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. You can do so on your favorite podcasting platform or by visiting the podcast page at houston.org. You'll find links to recent news and updates and learn more about how to get involved with the work of the Greater Houston Partnership to make a difference in the Houston region on our website. Thank you again for listening to Rise to the Top, the podcast.